Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a recording of an event held live via Zoom during the COVID-19 pandemic. It is a conversation between journalists Mark Davis and John Martinkus about John's book, The Road, Uprising in West Papua. The book is a gripping, up-to-date account of the province's descent into armed conflict. A quick warning, as this is an internet recording, there has been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. Here's Mark Davis introducing John Martinkus. John, uh, I knew you when you wrote your first book 20, 20 years ago, right, on East Timor, and uh, that one uh, nearly killed you. Uh, uh, has it got any easier? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, that was killer, that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was like the first album. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I threw everything I had into that one. Um, the difference with this one is, um, I suppose, over the years, because I've written like five books since, and I suppose I've, I've thought about a lot, and I've thought about a lot about how how you deliver a book and how you how you 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 know create it and put it together and and um you know deliver the message. And this one's quite short. Um, so it, it was actually quite hard to write. It took me a few months to write. Um, yeah, yeah, and it was quite hard. I mean, it's hard work. Um, you've been, you've been uh, brewing on this uh, book for many years. We've discussed the issue between us for, for you know, well, yeah. all that time, right? Um, what finally prompted it? Well, I mean, that's very simple. I was up in Timor last year for the 20th anniversary of the um, East Timorese, well, Timor-Leste's independence. And um, it was about two nights afterwards, um, I was staying in a hotel full of journalists and, you know, former UN workers and former aid workers who had come back for the independence. And, you know, everybody was sort of drifting off by that stage. And and, you know, I got to the end of the night and I was the only person left in the bar. <laughs> and, um, I asked the woman behind the bar for a pen and she gave me a pencil. And I wrote down the outline for the book on the back of a, a soggy beer coaster because, um, yeah, I just wanted to get it down because I had this idea that, like, you know, this has just happened in Timor, like they've become independent. They're having celebrations. This is all great. You know, the killing stopped, it's all over. There's a whole new generation of people with you. And and I kept thinking about West Papua. I kept thinking, yeah, but just down the road, well, not really a road, but across the sea, um, this is all still going on and the same sort of violence is going on. And, and it really depressed me, actually. I was very, um, I was like, oh, these people don't get it, you know. Like we sit here and we're celebrating, but you know it's still happening. The Indonesian military is still doing this, these atrocities, and and still killing people. And um, yeah, that's that's what motivated me to come back to Australia and get in touch with the publisher. There's always there's also a bit of a news element, or rather a new element that was going on here. This Papua story, West Papua story, does seem to have gone on forever. And it did seem to be sitting in a sort of stasis. You know, not much was happening. Eight, well, certainly 90s, all the 2000s. 
Yeah. And yet there's been a dramatic turn of events, hasn't there, in the last couple of years that most people have missed. What, what has happened in the last couple of years? Oh, look, I think there's been a really substantial change. Um, when I went up there in 2002 originally to write the quarterly essay on West Papua for the Black Ink, um, you know, I went up to the OPM camps, I went to the border, I went to the, I went to Timika and, um, you know, went to Song, travelled around, met as many people as I could, tried to sort of cover what was going on. And, and there was this sort of like, you know, this tiredness amongst the resistance movement. And you go up to, I remember going up to, um, well, they'd stopped, they'd stopped fighting by then, right? It was all this sort of... Yeah, pretty much. Of... They were just sort of waiting. And I remember going up to Matthias Wenders' camp um, near Vanamo, just across the border. And um, and those guys, you know, I mean, they had like... There was probably 30 of them there. They had like, you know, 10 shotguns between them and one or two old M16s or something. But they, you know, they had this parade and it was kind of like sad in a way in that they weren't really you know a viable fighting force at all and but what what has happened since has been a really marked change in that um you've had this whole new generation of fighters coming through um many of whom were children of those who have been fighting all their lives and and they've taken up arms, but they've also, there's been this huge influx of quite high quality weaponry. And that is, that is actually um, re-empowered them. And a lot of that, you know, it's a very strange thing. It's a lot of that is just simply bought from the nations. And um, yeah, and a lot of the money that, buy, that pays for it is from the nations too. So. Um, but what we've seen is a, a very, very big resurgence of the capability and the determination of the West African um, people to actually take on the Indonesians. I think that's what we've seen over the last two years. Yeah, well, I'll give you, a, a, let's make it a direct plug for your book. Uh, the thing that's really changed in the last few years has actually been this road, this road that is coming from the coast into the heartland, into the highlands, which is the heartland of the Indigenous people of West Papua and the heartland of the APM, pretty much. I mean, the trouble's coming to them, isn't it? Yeah, and that's and that's why I focused on that in the book, because, you know, what they've done, what the Indonesians have done, is they, by pushing this development through um, these areas, they've gone to areas where there's never been a, like a permanent Indonesian, you know, settlement or occupation or, you know, people wouldn't go up there. Incredibly remote and mountainous and there's never been outside, yeah. outsiders yeah. there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you didn't have any Indonesian trans migrants or, you know, um, people coming in and part of that was because it was always so inaccessible um, so they had a few missionaries they had um, you know back in Dutch times there was a few you know explorer missions that were out there but other than that really for many many years there was nothing 
Um, then in the 70s, late 70s and 80s, um, these guys were subject to um, pretty serious attacks and offences by the um, Indonesian military forces because um, they were deemed as pro-independence. And they were the Indonesian military, they, they employed the same tactics that they had employed in, in Timor, which was like, you know, bombing by you know, ground attack aircraft and helicopters and that kind of thing. And um, and the local population, there was a big movement of people at that time across the border in Japan, and also to other provinces as well. And what we've seen in the last two years is the replication of that. We've seen people moving across the mountains to PNG to get away from the fighting. And... Um, also, people moving to other other provinces or further up in the hills. Let's have a look at this road. I, I just pulled up a map. I may as well show it, hey? Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, you can tell us what we're looking at. That's uh, Darwin, just about there somewhere. There's Darwin. <laughs> now, this spine, I'm, I might do Well, I've got the map. Let me just sort of outlay it, John, then you can talk to it. This yeah. spine that runs through here, of course, is alive with gold. Um, yeah. There's no roads. There's no roads either from the south coast or the north coast. Now, yeah. um, it's the Freeport mine, which is the world's wealthiest gold and copper mine, is there. Uh, yeah. And that's been well and truly uh, pumped uh, and still got more to go. But there's been no practical, you can get helicopters up here, but there's no practical road up. So uh, I might, you can pick your, well, I know there's one road coming from Jayapura, which is the capital and there, and that's been talked about and been constructed for about 20 years. It's still not there, hasn't made it through to the Highlands. And the road that your book yeah. is essentially about is running from South Coast here up past Timica and punching through trying to get into uh, the Highlands where there's minerals and and funnily enough, fertile land, because it's flat up there as well. Once you get right up to the top, it's flat, it's fertile, it's got timber, it's got gold, it's got copper. So what the, the fight that's on now is essentially in this area, isn't it, John? It's essentially yeah, in this right. area. What's yeah. provoked that fight? And that's an area which is um, populated by the Induga people and also the Dani people. Um, and they've, they've always been... Um, you know, very sort of isolated, very sort of um, well, rebellious in a way. Um, they've refused to, like, learn in Bahasa Indonesia, for example. Um, and they're very, very tough people, too, because they live in this highlands area, which is... Um, and you've got to understand, I mean, this is an area where there's, like, the largest equatorial glaciers in the world. It's incredible, actually. Um, I've flown over there and, you know, because you can't go there, you know, you can't, you can't walk through there. I mean, a few people have, but it's really, really hard. And yeah, it's, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, three to 5,000 metre high mountains, which are, you know, they're covered in snow in the middle of like the equator. And, um, so the people up there are pretty tough. And, and they don't, you know, they don't really, um, I suppose I was going to say a lot, they don't take fools. <laughs> but, um, well, yeah, they basically don't. 
Well, they don't like their land being stolen, I guess, to get to the point, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so when the Indonesians tried to push a road through there, um, they came up to a lot of resistance. And, and that's what we've seen in the last two years. And that's what has basically reignited the war. That and the fact that um, I've noticed in covering conflicts, and I noticed this in Archer, and I noticed this in Timor as well, um, it's almost like a 20-year cycle. It's like, as long as it takes for your son to grow up to fighting age, then the conflict will reignite. And that's exactly what's happening in Papua. And I sort of I think about it like when I was over there in 2002, 2003, um, I was seeing the back end of that. Um, you know, I was interviewing these old fellows who you know, we're basically at the end of their fighting days. Now, it's their sons who are doing it. Mm, literally and, their sons. They're, they're yeah. 20-year-olds, aren't they? They're the 20 yeah, yeah, yeah. generational change for sure. We've got a question here. I don't know who it's from. Christine, I think they're coming from you, uh, being passed on by you. Is that correct? Can you put their name in just so we can acknowledge them? Yeah. It's a, a John, I know you love Meraki. It's a question about Meraki asking... Uh, is the road that's gone through Meraki um, that's destroyed all the sago gro groves and the uh, replaced it with monocrop plantations, I assume um, palm oil or something similar. Yeah. Is that is that part of the, the Papuan Highway project uh, as well to open up those lands around Meraki? Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the things that um, a lot of Papuans are raising um as a um as a bad side effect of the road going through is because it will actually open up a lot of these areas to palm oil plantations which um the downside of that is that the the profits go you know to companies based in jakarta or whatever they don't go to the local people and um and also what it does is it takes away arable land from the local people. And, and also it like, you know, clears larger areas of rainforest, which is um, also like an environmental problem. Um, it's been really, really, really heavily done by the Indonesians in uh, places like Kalimantan, you know, Borneo and, um, you know, you know, in Singapore, for example, like every year, there's like a, a huge smoke haze which comes from all the palm oil plantations in Indonesia, in Kalimantan and Borneo. And, um, you know, the Papans are afraid the same thing's going to happen there and their land's going to be taken away from them and they're not going to have access to it and it's going to be converted to these massive plantations which are for profit only. Mm. Well, this came to an explosive head. This road came to an explosive head uh, two years ago, which is when the whole sort of rebellion started again, and it was directly related to the road. What, what briefly tell us what happened uh, in 2018? Yeah, it was pretty simple, really. I mean, um, a group of Papuans in, in Duga, in the village, um, they did what they normally do on December 1, which is the commemoration of the day in 1961 when the Dutch first allowed the West Papuans to raise their own flag, the Morning Star flag. And um, 
And so they went out to um, raise their flag. You know, they had a, you know, as they do, they had like a meeting and they, you know, sang songs and raised the flag. And then they noticed there was some Indonesian road workers who, from the nearby camp who were um, taking photos with their phones, etc., of the people at the, not really a protest, more of a celebration. And, um, and that, and that freaked them out because they thought, oh, they're going to come and arrest us because... They'd never had uh, Indonesian officials or anybody in this part of the mountain before and now there's a, a road and, and people take yeah. it. Them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so so they were scared, mostly, and they were scared they were going to be... Um, because, the you know, raising the flag, it's a minimum five-year jail sentence um, from the Indonesians. Um... So it's pretty serious, and there's been many, many occasions over the years when um, people raising the flag have been shot, you know, out of hand um, by Indonesian police or military just for doing so. And so these people were generally afraid, and so they went and got the local, oh, the son of the um, independence leader there, um, Egyanus Kagoya. And um, and he basically went and got his folks together and they got their guns and they went to the road workers camp and they grabbed the road workers um, and they took them outside and they shot them um, because they didn't want the them to inform on the local community. I mean, it's a tragic thing, but under the circumstances, you could understand. Now, the, uh, and what there was about, I think there was 20, 24 road workers um, um, killed. Um, if nothing else, it was an attempt to stop the road, I guess. Um, what was Indonesia's uh, response to that attack? Well, um, yeah, that response is still going, Mark. Um, Initially, they sent in commandos, they sent in more troops, like thousands of them. Um, they embarked them on helicopters from Jaipur, they came in from Jakarta. They sent in commandos, they sent in special forces, they sent in, sent in um, you know, about 2,000 extra troops. Um, and um, they also started attacking villages with um, aerial weapons. Um, some of which included uh, chemical weapons, um, which was the, the white phosphorus that um, we wrote about about two years ago. Um, and, and they were basically like, um, like grenades or pellets or small shells that were dropped out of helicopters and dropped on villages in the area um, who were trying to flee, basically, um, you know, as part of a, a great reprisal. And the reprisal was like very much in the old, old school of the Indonesian military thought of, but like, we're going to go in and we're going to, we're going to kill them and we're going to wipe them out. And that's pretty much what they proceeded to try and do. Um, a lot of the people fled, um, thousands of them. They fled further up the hills, or they couldn't be caught. 
and that's still going on to this day. I mean, given how little contact these people have had with the outside world, it's particularly horrifying. I don't know if whether people understand how remote these villages are to have um, uh, bombs effectively dropped on you must be a particularly alarming for such uh, such remote people. Yeah, and also bear in mind there's a um, there's a history of this, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, even the nineties. Um, these villages or that area was attacked in pretty much the same way by you know waves of Indonesian operations through the area as they became more confident that the international community. Um, was kept at bay and they could do what they wanted. And, you know, and that is the same today. I mean, the United Nations Commission for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelot, she, she, she requested to be allowed to lead a mission to go in there, um, you know, about a year ago, or longer than that, about a year and a half. And, um, and at first, the Indonesians said yes. Um, the, you know, Wadodo, the, the president, he said yes. But then, of course, his generals said no. And so, as a consequence, no UN representatives, no human rights workers, no humanitarian workers, no journalists, of course, have been allowed into that area ever since. They've sealed off the entire area. And in fact, it's in response to. Um... I'll, I'll get up some photos, John. Um, they've sealed off the entire area following the accusation that um, chemical weapons were used, right? So this is the area that no one has been to. I mean, you know, Papuan or European, no one is in this area. This is the, the, the military zone in here. And the photos that they were most horrified about, well, they're a bit full on. If anyone's squeamish, I mean, I'll just quickly go through them. I won't linger, but um, this is what most disturbed Indonesia. These are clearly burn marks. They're not, um, they're not artillery marks, right? Um, uh, and I'll just quickly go through. Some of them are pretty gross and some of them are okay. They're burn marks. They're not bullet wounds or they're not uh, artillery wounds. And the, <clears throat> the oral evidence was that they, people were on fire. These are the cartridges. Um, you'd remember these well, John, right? We got these ones out. Yeah. Um, and I really like this picture because it actually gives you some glimpse of the people who live up there, right? I mean, it's tragic. They're actually burying somebody and, and they've got the, uh, the unexploded ordnance on, on top of the grave. But these are the people that are having these shells shot, uh, dropped on them. <coughs> so since those accusations... In 2018 or 2019, um, no one has got up there, including the UN that you were just referring to. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, there's been no independent verification or reporting from that area at all, um, which is, you know, kind of mind-boggling in a way in that the Indonesians could just say, nope, you're not coming up here, you're not allowed to see it. And, and part of what I've tried to do in the book is reconstruct that, that set of events or um, series of events um, through various different means, through 
uh, monitoring Indonesian military um, communiques, um, often published through Antara and that kind of thing, like state news agencies, um, or Indonesian local military mil media, I'm sorry, or, um, or local, um, local West Papuan media. Um, and it's very, very difficult because you sort of, you have to cross-check everything. You have to, like, you know, make sure you're not misquoting something. But, you know, the, the, the void of information is, is quite, you know, unheard of in the modern age in that, like, when, when both when the chemical weapons attacks were going on and then when the Waimana riots were going on, and also bear in mind there was what riots going on in other major city in West Papua at the time. There was riots in Jaipur, there was riots in Santani, there was riots in um, you know um, you know, Sorong, Manakwari, Fakfak. And um, yeah, people were getting getting killed. And I'm just showing I'm just showing Womana as you uh, as you speak, John. Yeah, sure, yeah. And but what they were doing was um, they actually shut down the entire internet for the entire two provinces. And they shut the phones down. <coughs> and they couldn't even use ATMs. Um, and this went on for about a week. And so what it, what it revealed was um, the Indonesians were actually kind of losing control of the situation. And they didn't want anybody to see it. And that's why they responded with such a heavy hand. And, and they did at that stage. They really kicked back against the Papuans and um, many people killed. Well, I guess uh, perhaps uh, the lesson Indonesia learnt from um, East Timor was don't let anybody in. That's when it all came unstuck for them, when, when a few people got in, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think they've learned that lesson um, I mean, to this day, you know, um, you know, I've still heard Indonesian military, former military, talk about East Timor as goes like, damn it, we we let them get away with it, and they blame the foreigners. They don't blame the local people. They blame the foreigners, and they say that the foreigners are the ones to blame. Exactly what they're doing now in Papua, um, they're saying that the foreigners are the problem. Now they're going after missionaries and um, yeah, and doctors and nurses and you know people who are trying to go there to do good. You know, mm. um, long ago, two thousand and three, that banned journalists pretty much. Um, well, I, I document in the book a, a case of this poor old Polish bloke who um, is a terrorist and um, he was in Wamana and he got arrested. And, you know, they blamed him with treason and everything. They've chucked him in jail for like five years now. And he appealed and they gave him more. <laughs> yeah, poor fella. That, um, yeah, apparently he's in really bad health. It's terrible. Mm. Uh, that was, he's the, it's, well, this is a current event we're talking about, right? He was just up there a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, he's still in jail now. Yeah. Jakob Skrzymski. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it is remarkable that this can happen these type of, type of killings basically can happen with so little attention on them. Now, I know, yes, it's hard to get in, but is that any 
rationale or, or justification for so little media coverage on it or no, apparent or interest yeah. or apparent interest uh, in it um is it is it a mystery to you oh look sadly it's not a mystery mark um i mean i only have to think back to when in the mid 90s i started reporting st more and how you had a situation when you had the alp and you had the lmp both supporting indonesia's occupation of indonesia both these teams so and um yeah, so there wasn't any appetite for news stories from there. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, I um, went up there in 94, came back, 95, went back with a friend of mine. He was a journalist who worked for News Corp, News Limited back then. And um, and he'd just gone to New Guinea and he'd done a story on the Rabao volcano, you know. And he'd made like sort of three grand or something, you know selling stories about, you know, pictures about, you know, the devastation. We went up there and visited it. And then he comes to team with me and and we can't sell anything when we get back, you know. We've we've got we've got stories, we've got, you know, shootings, we've got like people being arrested, we've got all sorts of stories. Um, but it was really hard. It was really hard to sell stories because there just wasn't that appetite for them. Mm. And because you were the only one telling it. It seems kind of weird, right? It seems it, it's, it becomes something to question you if you're the only one covering it, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, they're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. You're just, who are you, you know? Mm. Mm. And, and it was really frustrating, but it actually made me more determined to go back and keep doing it. Mm. Now, I found the same thing with Luis Papier. It was like, even writing this book, I mean, all this information is out there. It's all, you know, you can Google all this stuff. It's all there. Um, you know, it's quite, it's not, it's not a secret what's going on. Um, you know, you can speak to people, you can look stuff up, you can, you know, read reports, whatever. Um, but it's just, doesn't have any traction in the media. And mm. and I think that's a real problem because it's um it is a huge story and and there has been a there was, I think, a conscious effort to uncouple in a way, which is their word, the um the celebration of Timorese independence from the situation in West Papua, whereas they're incredibly similar and they're facing the same army, facing the same abuses. Um, we went in, Australia, I mean, uh, went in to, you know, liberate the East Timorese only after, you know, being pushed for a long time. But we did it in the end, which is good. And, and these days it's like, well, you know, we can't, we can't even raise West Papua. We can't even talk about it. We can't even write about it. Um, I think it's like morally, it's just wrong. Mm. There's like no moral equation. There. Mm. It's hard to see why people won't report it. I mean, it's a mystery to me. I don't know. That yeah. I don't know that there's any great sort of conspiracy going on, but perhaps it's a sign of our the weakness of our media now that it's so reliant on. For, for its foreign coverage, it's, it's totally reliant on 
foreign yeah. media as such, BBC, CNN, whatever, you know. So, yeah. so Hong Kong becomes an incredibly important story, but people being shot from helicopters is not a story, you know, I mean, go figure. Yeah. Yeah, and also the inaccessibility. Um, basically since 2003, um, I certainly haven't been allowed to go back there. Um, and very few journalists have been. Yeah, no. but uh, yeah, but at different times now, we're, we're not needing journalists to go there so much, right? We're getting yeah. photos, we're getting video, we're getting credible people taking statements. We actually don't need, I mean, I hate to say it, you know, the hero journalists kind of battling through the jungles anymore. Yeah, that's right. This yeah. information out, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, like, this information's there. It just mm. needs to be analysed and distributed. I mean, you could throw, you know, five, four corners together just from the video footage that's coming out of there. People are filming it now on their phones yeah. and, and getting it, risking yeah. their lives to get it out. It's coming. It's that, The material's there, uh, but no one doesn't much with it. Yeah, uh, well, foreign correspondent did one on last week, which was good on them. Um, that's Matt Carney, who's had an interest in it for many years. So good on, good on him. But uh, that's a rare, a very rare thing. And now, yeah. sorry, John, you go on. Oh, go on. I'm going, to take, I'm going to take some questions. Uh, but as we talk, I'll just try and throw a, a few questions in. I might not get to everybody's. I'm sorry. Um, what do you think from Kate? Uh, what do you think it would take for the Australian um, government to get involved? Oh. Cool. <laughs> just give me some short answers, John. We've got, probably got five, ten minutes. So just you know, right. we'll okay. roll through. I think um, what it would have to, have to take would be um, a nudge from the United States, I think. I think um, the United States would have to disengage from its commercial interests in West Papua, which I think is a major, major reason why this war is allowed to continue. Freeport. And, um, you know, you have to bear in mind that Freeport, the mine in Grasberg mine, is the largest gold mine in the world um, and third largest copper mine. And, and it's the largest taxpayer to the Indonesian government, the largest foreign taxpayer, I should say. But basically, it's worth a bundle of money. Mm. And if Freeport were to relinquish that mine, which they actually seem to be moving towards because it's actually running out of gold. Um, they've gone from open cut to deep cut mine. Mm. And, you know, yeah, if they, they were to withdraw that economic interest, I think it would make a huge difference. And Australia would actually, you know, perhaps move its position, which is entirely possible. Freeport is running out, or perhaps a bit dramatic to say it's running out, but it's certainly the end is in sight. And, of course, it's, it's why they need the road, right? They need that road to move up beyond Freeport, up into the, further up into the highlands. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and that's where it goes by. Mm. I'm just plugging your title, John. I'll just continue to plug your title. <laughs> the road. <laughs> I'm a good friend. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll get to a couple of others. Uh, what have we got? Okay. Uh, I don't know who's given this one. Shri, I think, has given me this question. The butcher of East Timor, General Paboa, is oh. now the uh, Indonesian Minister uh, of Defence. Um, I expect it's too early to say, but perhaps the right question for you, John, is do you foresee a change coming? That is, 
in the attitude of the Indonesian military or in um, in, in Prabowo? I mean, it's a fair, a fair question. We shouldn't be too, you know, immediately harsh. It's a fair question. Do you sense there's a possibility of any change in the Indonesian military? Yeah, look, that's a funny one because, um, look, I think the response to the, um, the initial killings in Nduga and the military's response, you know, with the use of chemical weapons and these big operations involving thousands of troops and, you know, displacement of large amounts of people, um, are very reminiscent of what, of the way they, they've always handled things. And people like Lorenzo, um, who was minister for like basically you know, the Indonesian equivalent of Dublin, like minister for home affairs and, and Prabhau, who's like, you know, defence. Um, they've, they've reacted as they, they always have. And, but I, I do get a sense that um, there is a certain part of Indonesian society that's uncomfortable, uncomfortable with that, which is kind of hopeful. Um, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, I think it was um, Waranto came out. I oh, know it was Ray Kuda. Ray Kuda, who's another former general, as a, a minister, and um, and he's got like war crimes coming out of his hat, you know. Mm. And um, yeah, he came out and said, "Oh, we're just going to crush them. We're just going to crush them." And you know that was like his official response. And you know it's that kind of old guard mindset of like the Sahado era way of dealing with separatism that um, has to change. But you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't exactly say that the public mood is very sympathetic to the uh, West Papuans, the, the whole goading about being um, monkeys, you know, very commonly circulated on social media, isn't it? They're, they're gorillas in the zoological sense and they're monkeys and they're yeah a lot of that's confected though um it was actually i, I talk about it in the book there was um a big report done um last year by Reuters um about um how many how many you know bots or whatever are on social media promoting this kind of like hard line against West Papua, um, West Papua independence, I should say. Um, and I've experienced it myself. It's quite quite funny, really, because ever since I started promoting this book, I've had a wave of um, tweets and Facebook comments. Yeah, someone, someone's just commenting uh, there, you're getting lots of uh, online abuse from <laughs> Indonesians. Your, your views are outdated. Uh, yeah, it's funny, actually, because they... Um, there was a guy who was a sergeant at uh, Jakarta military base and he was responsible for um, setting up all these different accounts. And he was very, so prolific and he was very good at his job. And he got an award. He got a medal for it last year. And, um, and, you know, for service to the nation sort of thing. And what he does all day is he sits on there and has these various accounts and just puts out these... Um, you know, you know, cut and paste messages to every 
format he can find, basically supporting Indonesia's role in West Papua. So you have to take a lot, a lot of this with a bit of grain of salt. And, and what was so funny about that particular case was, like, they gave him an award, you know, in public. Um, you know, the general gave him an award. It's like, good on you. Excellent work. Um, you're doing really good. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> and the Reuters report traced the, um, the ISP number back to the military barracks in Chicago. Mm. So go figure. Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't mind them um, uh, taking pot shots on uh, social media. I, I, I don't like the, the real shots from helicopters myself. <laughs> Um, now, I did say we'd stick within our 45, so we are coming to uh, an end. There may be a question or quick question or two to come if anyone's got one. Um, I, I won't repeat the same questions. Um, John, uh, any prospect of you getting up there again, do you think, in, in your time? Well, I'd love to. Uh, if they extended me an invitation, I'd take it. Um, absolutely. And um, I'd be quite open to um, going up there and reporting again, because I think it's really important. Um, yeah. Well, there's lots of things to write on in the world and you, you tend to stick with our region. Um, it takes a lot to write a book. Sort of final question. Is it, is it worth it uh, to you to get this book uh, out into the world? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, like as I said earlier, um, you know, I, I do think this one's a really important book, and um, like I've written five books now, and, you know, varying lengths, <laughs> and um, yeah, but I really did put my heart and soul into this one because it it was an issue that I felt was unsettled. Like I'd been there up in. 2002, 2003, and I, I never had a chance to go back and, you know, lots of things intervened, like other wars and other conflicts and, you know, a whole different career. But, yeah, I felt like it was unfinished business that I should revisit it and I should tell the story again. Good on you. Well, I'm glad you did. And uh, it's the only book uh, to read. I can't think of another one that's been written on this topic in uh, many, many years. So... Good. Thank you, John. Hats off to you. And thanks, everybody. Um, uh, there were some questions I didn't uh, get to, I'm sorry, but we're, we're, we're sticking to our 45. Thanks, John. No you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. There you can sign up to our e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast were provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>